So please open to Luke chapter 9, and you'll see it's on page 867 if you're using the church Bibles. Page 867 in the church Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you, we'd love for you to have a Bible for yourself so you can hear God speak because we believe that's where God speaks. He speaks to us through his word, the Bible. I'm going to read from Luke 9. You'll see on the back of your service sheet there's a sermon outline, a message outline there. Uh, in that outline you'll see there's a cross-reference from Exodus 24. There's always a, a cross-reference passage we like to highlight. Um, but there's a lot of cross-reference passages today from the Old Testament that I'll be taking us to. You don't need to find them necessarily, but you'll need to see that there's a lot of connections going on here today for what's happening before us in a very mysterious event that we don't really hear much about. I'm going to read the context, though. So I'm going to read from verse 18 right through to verse 36, but we're focusing today in the transfiguration. Luke 9 Verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days later, After saying these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Uh, Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have seen in your word just now things that are mysterious, that are hard to understand. And so we're asking this, we're praying as we listen to your voice, as you speak to us in the scriptures, 
Help us to listen to your Son, your Chosen One. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder, have you ever had a brush with fame? Have you ever had a brush with fame? I asked my wife this morning over breakfast this question because I've been thinking about it for a while and I, I, I don't have high-level brushes with fame. I've had one. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But I asked Amy, have you ever had a brush with fame? And she couldn't think of one particularly except that her cousin currently is starring in a series on Stan. So if you have Stan and you've seen that series called The Gloaming, uh, the woman there, the star of the show is Amy's cousin. Amy started watching it on Friday night. I was away at Presbytery in Swan Hill and she said she couldn't get to sleep afterwards. So that's the kind of series that it is. But for me, it's not been a movie star, but I, I was once standing behind one of my hero, favourite country music artists at an airport. I was at an airport, you know, I was tired. I was going to Sydney for something and who wants to go to Sydney for something? But I was there. Jokes. I'm just joking, okay? Just jokes. I'm there in Melbourne Airport. And as I'm standing at Melbourne Airport in the domestic area and the departures, me with all the other cattle class uh, crew, right in front of me I happen to notice, it's John Williamson. Someone knows who John Williamson is? So John Williamson, right? Like famous Australian country music artist. He's from the Mallees, from Victoria. You've got a few fist pumps up there. He's great. John Williamson. You know, so he's like, g'day, I'm John Williamson from Australia. Hey, Trovo. Don't say you're gone. That's John Williamson, right? Um, like he's my, he's my hero. I, I grew up with John Williamson. My dad played John Williamson. I still, on my iPod, played John Williamson. His song about rugby is absolutely inspiring. Could convert a whole state if you listen to it. But he's, um, he's there at the airport, right? So I'm just standing there a bit starstruck, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I could like talk with him. I could ask him. like Maybe he could sign something. I didn't have anything particular but an airline ticket. Maybe he could sign my Bible. Um, Anyway, I know he's not a fan of the Bible, but as I sort of was there, I wanted to kind of get around and get in his, his space, which maybe made him a little bit reactive. Um, but he was grumpy. Very grumpy and very ordinary. And John Williamson, if you're ever listening to this sermon, which I really think is very unlikely, but say you are, it's not necessarily your fault. I'm just using you as an illustration. Here is someone famous that I was having this little brush with, literally brushing kind of high. Never really had a conversation that day. And he just came across as so grumpy, so, dare I say it, ordinary. Just so ordinary. Have you had a brush with fame like that? You realised who it is? Well, with Jesus, that's what we see in the transfiguration. Uh, many of us come to this passage, we're looking at verse 28, particularly in Luke 9, 28 to 36, in this, this thing that's often called the transfiguration, because the other gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, they call it transfiguration. It's, the word is used, transfigured, in your Bibles. And we often look at this and go, firstly, that's weird. Secondly, what has it got to do with my life? We're often used to coming to the Bible thinking, how does the gospel change everything here? How does this change me? What has it got to do with us? Is this just an interesting brush with fame that the disciples have? Well, I actually think it is a, it's a brush with fame in a sense of, kind of like me at the airport realising who I was behind, we, when we see Jesus' transfiguration, we really do realise who this is. He's been saying it, he's been doing things that should point to who he is, but in the transfiguration, we get a glimpse of glory. 
Peter, John and James get this glimpse of glory. And the question we have to ask is, which we'll answer now, what difference does it make to our lives? See, in this moment here we have, of course, it's eight days later, verse 28, the context is Jesus has been asking his closest followers who have been behind him, like me at the airport, behind John Williamson, they've been following Jesus, and he says, now's the time, guys. Bring it in, bring it in, group huddle, group huddle, here it is, vision moment time. Who do the crowds say I am? I want to hear what you've heard. Like, oh, well, some people are saying Elijah. You know, it's possible. Maybe Elijah's come back from the dead. It's Elijah. You're Elijah. Someone else says, well, I've heard they're saying you're John the Baptist. In fact, Herod thought this because Herod had killed John the Baptist eventually and, and Herod's like freaking out. Maybe, oh, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And then Jesus says, okay, all right, all right. Cut to the chase. You've been following me. I want to know, disciples. I want to know, Reforming Church. Who do you say I am? Like if you were having a conversation, you were tell, talking to your friends about who you are, who do you say I am? And Peter, and if you know Peter, and we're getting to know Peter as we get to know Jesus, Peter's kind of like foot and mouth often. Says the inappropriate things. You know that kind of friend who you're at dinner with who says something and then you just hold on to your knife and fork a little tighter and go, oh. That's Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ. And you can imagine the other disciples going, and then Jesus says, got it. Peter gets it right. And Peter must be going, see that? With this context now, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 27, I'm telling you something, listen to me, I tell you, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Eight days later, they're going to see something. Because the kingdom of God is never fully realized yet until Christ returns, but we see it progressively. We see these glimpses, and, and there's a big one at Jesus' resurrection at the end of Luke's gospel. But there's a little glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of God here in this transfiguration, just a little glimpse. You see, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, if you noticed, Whenever Jesus goes up on a mountain, something big is going to happen. He goes up on a mountain to pray. And this time he takes the three closest of the inner circle with him. They're asleep. And as Jesus prays, Luke writes, the word he uses, his face is altered. Something changes. Jesus, something looks different about you now. Did you change your hairstyle? Something looks different. And this is the question, though, isn't it? What is it about Jesus' face that changes? It's interesting that in, um, in Luke's gospel, he uses the word altered. But in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, which are the kind of the, the synoptic or they're, they're sort of synced in sync with Luke's gospel, in those gospels, they use a different word. They both use this Greek word, metamorphio, metamorphe. It's guess what word comes from that that we use? Metamorphosis. They're saying something significant has changed in Jesus' face. Uh, Luke writes, his clothing is dazzling white. But get this, his nature hasn't changed. Now see, Moses had a similar experience. So in Exodus 34, 
Uh, in Exodus 34, you don't have to go there, but let me just uh, read that little part to you. Moses, um, this man of God, this prophet, great leader of God's people, Israel, he goes up on a mountain, and when he's getting the ten tablets uh, all sorted out, and, uh, and by this time it's ten tablets Mark two because what happened to the first set, he goes up on the mountain, and we read this in Exodus 34, that as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his faith shone because he had been talking with God. In fact, it shone so much, the people of Israel did not handle being in his presence. He needed to put a veil over himself. And it kept shining. Is that what's happened to Jesus? The similarities, but here's a big difference. Moses goes up on a mountain and his face shines because it's reflecting God's glory. Jesus goes up on a mountain. His face shines because he is God's glory. See, Moses' face reflected, but Jesus' face shows. And in this moment where God's glory is being seen in Jesus, of who he really is, in this brush with fame the disciples are having, all of a sudden two other famous people appear. Verse 30. Of all the people, in fact, one of them they've been talking about, it's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. Now, there's, there's an old joke with this particular event. People often say, how did the disciples know it was Moses and Elijah? What, they're wearing name tags? It's like, just so we know each other here. This is Moses, Elijah, this is what they do for fun. Um, Moses likes gardening. Uh, Elijah likes, you know, sort of building altars and seeing them burn. That sort of stuff. Now, it's quite clear that as they're talking, they're revealing in in the conversation with Jesus something about themselves, but also something about who Jesus is. See, if anyone's never doubted who Jesus is, now we see clearly who Jesus is, because Moses and Elijah are here now pointing to who Jesus is. And this is interesting, because who is Moses? I mean, ultimately, he is one who represents the law of God. So all the Old Testament law, the Torah, the teaching, lots of it written by Moses, penned by Moses, authored by God. Here is Moses, and who is Elijah? He's this great prophet, representative of the prophets. So you have the law and the prophets, the two big representatives here, talking with Jesus. These are two men that in their own ministry have pointed throughout the whole Old Testament, pointed to who Jesus is, who he is and who he is to come. And now they're here pointing us to who Jesus is. Luke writes this gospel and he also writes a second volume, the book of Acts, and he says in the book of Acts, he writes in the book of Acts, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the Old Testament has been saying this, someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. Moses said this, someone is coming. Elijah pointed to this, someone is coming. And now they're here standing with him saying, someone is here. And they saw his glory. Peter, who's there, of course, very sleepy with the others, wakes up, verse 32, and they see his glory. Peter writes his letter to the churches, and he says this in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. If you're here checking out Christianity, if you're here checking out who Jesus is, Peter is at pains to say, I'm writing a letter to you, 
Whatever church you belong to, in fact, he writes his letters to the churches of the dispersion. In other words, not any particular ones, just the churches, even reforming church. I'm writing this to you. He says this to you in his letter. I didn't follow clever myths. When we made to you known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses. We were there. For when we received glory and honor from the Father, from God the Father, there was a voice we heard. Born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Jesus says, uh, Peter says, we were there. We glimpsed his glory. Now, Peter, next in verse 33, says something. Uh Uh-oh. Peter's going to say something. What's he going to say? There's interesting debate about the meaning of this, but let's just look and see if you can see what's going on here, what, what Peter means. Verse 33, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. That's Luke's summary. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's so starstruck, he's so dumbstruck by the fact that, that he's glimpsing glory, it's almost like he's saying, hey, Jesus, look, um, I've got an idea. Let's go camping. Look, we're on the mountain already. Let's go camping. We'll have camp out. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. We'll play cubby house or something. Is that what he's saying? I've done a lot of reading on this, and you look at the, the three synoptic gospels in comparison to this particular text. Uh, some people argue that Peter is actually talking about the tabernacle. Um, I think there is language of tabernacle here, but I'm not sure Peter gets it because in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, for example, Mark's gospel says he said that because he was terrified because he didn't know what to say. He's just scared. You know when you met someone famous, not sure what to say? Like, what am I going to say to John Williamson? Hi, I'm Russ, and I listen to your music. That's what Peter's, in this moment, he's just not sure what to say. He's like, ah, wow, there's Jesus and there's Moses and there's Elijah. I read your books, heard a lot about you. Um, Who wants to go camping? And as Peter says this, a cloud comes and overshadows them. And they're more afraid. What's going on here? God's cloud is coming to overshadow. Whenever something significant happens in the Old Testament, whenever God reveals his glory, these things happen. Exodus 24, which is your cross-reference passage on your sermon outline, Exodus 24, go and read it later. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. You see, the glory of God comes in this cloud. And in fact, when they first build the tabernacle, this big tent, not just a camping tent, but the tent of God's dwelling with his people for the Old Testament people of God in Israel, when they build the tabernacle, which then becomes a temple, that is how God's glory is manifest in a big, moving, overshadowing cloud. A cloud that fills a room. A cloud that overshadows everything. Because you cannot contain God's glory. If you had to explain the word glory to someone, how would you explain it? How do we use glory today? 
The closest thing I can think of is we perhaps speak about glory in sporting stars, glorious kick, glorious game, maybe. How would you explain glory? Glory is defined by, literally, weightiness, heaviness, heavy worth of importance. It's why, in fact, in the medieval ages, why kings and queens often wore a lot of stuff, not because they were cold, although they often look like they live in cold places, to do with some internal ducted heating, but they wear big robes, often with those little black dots. They're actually eyes, meant to say that we see everything. We're the king, we're the queen. And they wear big crowns, and it's all heavy, and with a big train. And they say, this is my heaviness, my glory. Of course, it's a poor human attempt, isn't it? What has God got? A cloud that overshadows and fills everything. His glory, his weight, his importance overshadows them. We see this at the tabernacle. And Moses was about, Exodus 40, Moses was about to enter the tent of meeting because the, he couldn't though because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. First Kings chapter 8 when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And in fact, we see in the exile, there's a tragedy because of the sin of Israel and they sin and will not repent. Eventually, we see the glory of God leave the temple. The cloud leaves. They say, where is the glory gone? And here in Luke's gospel, remember at Christmas time we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit. Luke one thirty five. the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, God's glory overshadowing. And now, here is Peter, John and James. And the glory of God is overshadowing. Why? Because Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the incarnation of God's glory. Jesus is God's glory personified in a person. Before God's glory was manifest in a cloud, now he comes in a person, in a human. And his face in this moment reveals who he really is. Even as Peter talks about tents and doesn't really know what he's talking about, Jesus is the true tent right with him. He is the true temple. The true dwelling place of God with man is with them. And they saw his glory and they hear his voice. Everything comes to a climax in this moment. It's at Jesus' baptism, of course, they hear a voice of God, isn't it? They hear, as the Holy Spirit comes like a dove, we hear this voice at that baptism. You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Here we hear the voice of God again. It's very similar. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. There's similarities, but do you see the differences? At Jesus' baptism, the voice speaks to Jesus. You are my son. With you I'm well pleased. But here the voice speaks to us. It speaks to Peter, John and James. It speaks to us. It says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. That question again, 
that question that we need to ask as we finish. What does getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration do for us? Is this just a picture gazing, looking at a painting on a wall? You know, when you look up at a painting, I'm told, if you're supposed to appreciate art, you're supposed to get close and see the, the brush strokes and then get far and see it like that. Is that what this is? This is just looking at a painting. So that today we go, that is amazing. Let's have some morning tea. That's his church lunch today. What difference does this make? What difference does it make to see, to glimpse his glory? Well, I think it means this. You see, if we understand who Jesus is in his weight of glory, to encounter Jesus ought to change you. Or to change your life, change your attitudes, change your ambitions, change your horizon of what really life is about and where it ends and where it's going and where you're going in life and what you're doing with your life. It changes you. It changed Peter, James and John. How will it change you? Do you see who Jesus is? In Luke's gospel, as we follow Jesus in Luke's gospel, it would be easy just to see him as a teacher or even as a preacher or as a healer. But do you see that when you talk about Jesus, when you speak about Jesus with your family, your friends, the little disciples, the little ones, when you speak about Jesus, when you look to Jesus, you are talking about God himself. Does that blow you away even a little bit? See, it might not because some of us struggle through things like unbelief, doubt, shame keeps us away, struggles with others. Perhaps we just get consumed with what's next or what's on in my life and we just need to again glimpse his glory. We need to listen to him. Now, we could... Say, let's find a mountain and hope it happens again. But no, we don't need to because we have something greater. You don't need to have a mystical experience to encounter Jesus. You're encountering him now whenever you hear the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, that that God in all his glory comes not to impress you or to give you a big moment of mystery. He comes to rescue See, the transfiguration actually shows us the gospel. I wonder if you saw it. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. What they're talking about is the gospel. Everything they've prophesied about, they're talking about. Now notice there, you have a look there. It says that um, in verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. We can look over that and go, oh, that's interesting. They're talking about, yeah, yeah, Jesus is going to depart. Is he leaving the mountain departure? You might have a footnote in your Bible. you have a footnote on that word departure? Can you see the footnote, the number? And what at the bottom of the page, what is the word for departure? In fact, let me tell you what the word for departure is in the Greek language. It's exodon. What do you think that word means? Exodus. 
Literally, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about the Exodus project. The Exodus plan. What is the Exodus plan? Jesus is going to go through Exodus. Jesus is going to be exited. You see, the Exodus, of course, for Moses, for the people of God then, and for for Elijah, for the people of God since, when they look to the Exodus, what do they see? We were slaves in Egypt. We were under oppression. And God came. And what did God do? He saw the blood of a lamb shed as a sacrifice so that we would be passed over by the plague of death, so that we could be freed from slavery and formed into a nation and worship God forever. The Exodus points to our rescue and slavery from sin to now being formed into God's people, the church. Do you see? Jesus at the cross goes through the Exodus for us. When I saw John Williamson that day, so close. Like I was so close, I could have put my hands on his shoulders, kind of close. I'm not that kind of guy. I don't want to freak anyone out. I was so close, and yet because I was so close, I could see he was so ordinary. I saw who he really is. When you get up close and personal with Jesus and you see who he really is, especially in this moment, you don't see how ordinary he is. Yes, he is fully man. He's fully God. You see how extraordinary he is. And you see who he really is in this glimpse of glory. The chosen one, God in flesh, has come to be cut off in his flesh, to die in his flesh, to depart in his flesh, to be the lamb who was slain, to spill his blood that we celebrate in a moment as we turn to the table. He has come, his body broken, his blood shed for you to not face the plague of death and judgment forever. He has come. God has come for you. And his glory is finally revealed in that God who is one who is weighty and heavy in importance, whose glory fills the earth, is the one who is humble and dies for people on this earth. Jesus is God in flesh to die for flesh. 